0: Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder, and now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Rebecca Eyre is the Chief Executive Officer of Project HEAL and a therapist by trade, having treated eating disorders and trauma since 2011. She joins us today to talk all about Project HEAL, which is a nonprofit organization that's on a mission to break down systemic health care and financial barriers to eating disorder treatment, and this is so huge because less than 20% of people who have eating disorders ever receive treatment, and this especially affects marginalized communities. Rebecca is a driving force behind Project HEAL's mission to provide equitable eating disorder treatment for everyone. So if you're struggling with an eating disorder and have not been able to receive treatment or care Because of a number of barriers, please listen to this episode so you can learn how you can receive support through Project Heal. And if you're a practitioner or somebody who's passionate about supporting eating disorder recovery, I encourage you to also tune in because you'll be really educated about the problem that we're facing currently with eating disorders in this country in particular and ways that you can support this cause so that we can make sure that eating disorder treatment is accessible and fair to all. I recently signed up to become part of Project HEAL's healing circle, which means that I get to work one-on-one with somebody who applies through Project HEAL. So if you've been wanting to work with me, but finances has been a barrier, then this may be a way that we could still work together. Enjoy this episode. It's incredible.
1: All right. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Thank you so
0: much for having me. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation because after I spoke with you a few weeks ago about Project Heal, I just am so struck by this organization and the work that you're doing. It's so important. Thank you. The way you're supporting the eating disorder community and providing treatment options for people who are struggling. So I knew I had to highlight this and I'm excited that you're here.
1: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So you're CEO of Project Heal. Yes. Can you just briefly explain what Project Heal is and a bit about your
1: mission? Yeah, of course. So Project Heal is a national eating disorder nonprofit, and we're specifically focused on creating equitable access to care. Uh, our mission is to break down systemic healthcare care and financial barriers. And our vision is that everyone with an eating disorder in the United States would have access to the opportunities and resources that they need to heal. And this is so important because not only are eating disorders very common, um, they're also one of the most undertreated and underdiagnosed mental illnesses and they are also second most fatal mental illness. So that Venn diagram troubles me um, and it troubles a lot of folks right um, And it is costing people their lives and so, It's really, really important that, you know, given how serious eating disorders are and um, how prolific they are, how, how common they are, it's really, really important that we address the issue of access and Project Heal is the only nonprofit that is exclusive, exclusively focused on that. Uh, And all of our programs are aimed at making sure that anyone who finds themselves struggling with an eating disorder um, can access the care that they need in order to heal, regardless of financial status, identity, um, any of the other barriers that come into place.
0: Yeah. And this is why I love your organization and was so lit up about it because, you know, obviously my heart and passion is supporting people with eating disorders Mm -hmm. to do the inner work so that they can heal and recover. And I know from personal experience, a, how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. And B, you know, I spent the first five years of my eating disorder, alone without mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. And as I started to do research and learn the stats around treatment and recovery, I was also shocked. It's alarming. Yeah. It's crazy. And so for me, that was one of my motivating factors was like, I'm going to heal myself because there are so many people struggling and the thought that people were suffering the way I was, was heartbreaking and yeah. enough fuel for me to be like, I'm figuring, I'm figuring this out. Like, let's yeah. go. This is not yeah.
1: okay exactly yeah i mean just for those listening um you know it's estimated that 30 million people living in the united states will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their lifetime and that 5 million people right now have been diagnosed with an eating disorder and less than 20% of those people are receiving treatment and a lot of people assume that that's because they're in denial they don't want to recover they're resistant to the healing process and the fact is that most people with eating disorders at some point do seek support and they run into barriers, whether it's too expensive, their insurance won't cover it. There's no providers available. There's no providers near them. There's no uh, providers that look like them. They're dismissed as not being sick enough. All of these things lead to people living lives with untreated eating disorders. Um, And so sure, there are some personal barriers. We all know someone who has an eating disorder who refuses to seek treatment. Um, But the vast majority of people, absolutely would heal if the treatment landscape was hospitable to them. Um, and they would certainly seek it, um, you know, at some point. And so, and, and I think it's really important to note that that is based on data about diagnosis. And so there's also a huge slew of people who have never been diagnosed. I am sure, you know, people probably those first five years of your struggle didn't have a diagnosis, right? You were not on anybody's books, still not not because I was
0: self-diagnosed. Like I still never
1: formally had that. Yeah. So you are not counted in that, in that 30 million and that 5 million. And so I personally know dozens of people who have eating disorders who have never been diagnosed. And so uh, when we talk about that 30 million, that's 10% of people in the United States around, Um, I think it's a lot closer to 25, 40%. You know what I'm talking about? I agree. Most Way more people than we realize have um, an eating disorder. And especially when you add in the diagnosis of OSFED, otherwise specified feeding and eating disorder, which includes subclinical eating disorders and really is the umbrella for disordered eating. Um, I think we're looking at closer to 75% of people in the the country,
0: which is shocking, but feels true. As you were giving the initial stats, my first thought was it's definitely way higher than that because- of what you're pointing to, how many people don't get a diagnosis, don't seek treatment or don't meet the criteria of the more commonly known, you know, mm-hmm. eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia or binge exactly. eating, exactly. but are still struggling with disorder tendencies. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it, it is so widespread to the point where I don't want to say it's normalized, but unfortunately in this country, there is a little bit of normalization around Disordered eating tendencies.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We have a really robust diet industry, a re- really robust wellness industry. Multi billions of dollars are being um, spent on and and made from these industries. And a lot of them include things that are absolutely <laughs> behaviors that would be diagnosed as an eating disorder. And I, I want to just touch on something you just said, which is that anorexia is the most commonly diagnosed um eating disorder generally because it's you know typically visible um at least as it's written in the dsm because there's a a weight metric right involved and so when someone is underweight or they're losing weight they're a lot more likely to be screened by their doctor because they're or their you know providers in general because people are like oh this person appears malnourished when and and unless you disclose the bingeing or purging you're likely not to Going to have your bulimia recognized, um, especially if it isn't purging by vomiting, right? If it's laxative abuse, if it's exercise abuse, if it's restriction following a binge, like those are missed all the time um, by doctors. And I would even argue that binge eating disorder, despite being much more common than bulimia and anorexia combined, I think that it is very commonly not diagnosed by primary care providers because not only was it only recently added to the DSM and it's not on people's radar it's typically interpreted as a weight issue. And the, and doctors are like, Hey, you're gaining weight. You need to lose weight. And they prescribe a diet. They don't ask about eating behaviors and screen for those mental health components of, of why a person might be gaining weight or why a person might be in a higher weight body. And also important to note that there's a little diagnosis under OSFED called atypical anorexia, which is someone who meets all criteria for anorexia, but they're not underweight. And so I'm sure your listeners already know this, but it's so important to name that like how many people with quote unquote atypical anorexia are never diagnosed because they're not perceived to have a problem (laughs) with restriction because their bodies are pathologized. Um, And that person might even be told to lose weight despite being malnourished. Um, And if a person is in a higher weight body and they lose a dramatic amount of weight in a short period of time, they're often praised by their doctors rather than screened for an eating disorder. And they're praised by everybody, their family, their friends, society, et cetera. And our culture is so preoccupied with getting people to be thin and so preoccupied with the badness of fat that essentially, unless you are too thin, unless you have sort of taken this cultural ideal too far, everything else is sort of fine to, I think, most medical providers, most mental health providers, and most people in society. But meanwhile, the people with those disordered relationships with food are suffering so much. Yeah. Um, and then they're in that bind of like, the thing that feels like it's killing me is being dismissed as not a problem by not only the people that I know who maybe don't understand, but by my own medical professionals, you know? And so when you have an eating disorder voice in your mind, that's saying you're not being successful at your eating disorder, essentially, you're not restricting enough. You're not you know, losing weight quickly enough. You're out of control with your eating, whatever. And then your doctor and even eating disorder treatment centers and insurance companies are like, we agree your eating disorder isn't serious enough to, to warrant uh, the treatment that you're asking for it's a huge problem. Um, the whole slew of reasons that people's eating disorders aren't taken seriously are, are hundred percent rooted in anti-fatness and in this really harmful stereotype that anorexia is the only eating disorder, um, that matters. And it's simply not true. And it's really, really dangerous. And it's devastating to me because I know people who have lost their lives as a result of this bias. Um, and we unfortunately receive donations like a new person every week will name project heal in their, in their obituary because their loved one lost their, their battle to, um, with their eating disorder. Um, and the number of people who were unfairly denied author insurance authorization for their treatment or prematurely discharged. Cause their insurance was like, you're, you're good enough. You can go home. Um, or had treatment that simply wasn't effective or wasn't culturally sensitive and, or who never went, who never got treatment. That's what should trouble us all. It keeps me up at night. And it's definitely the biggest reason I do this work.
0: Yeah. Just as you're speaking, I mean, you're so eloquently and powerfully showing why this is a problem. I mean, Mm -hmm. it feels like a pandemic really. It It is. It's Like I'm like, why are we not all talking about this? As your it's a crisis. I know. Yes, it really is. I'm like, okay, I need to manage my anxiety right now because I'm like, oh my god, how do we help? How do we make a dent? And yet, you know, here you are doing that in really big ways with Project Heal. Just to speak to what you were saying about this, you know, the way that we treat, especially with binge eating and according to weight, you know, I hear so many clients who they don't even realize that they have an eating disorder because they've just heard, we well, just don't eat as much, mm-hmm. have willpower, use control. Right. And so people are feeling horrible about themselves because they can't seem to control themselves around food, not realizing that it's actually a mental health condition mm-hmm. that isn't stemming from a lack of willpower or being lazy, but has a lot of factors that are influencing yeah. that, that sort of development and that, those expression of symptoms,
1: and you know what are like three main things that lead people to binge.
0: <laughs> being
1: told do mm-hmm. Um, like societal oppression, which people in higher weight bodies experience on a daily basis, and shame. Right, suppression so, of
0: emotions, and yeah. your experience, the invalidation of
1: your experience. The ways that we treat people with binge eating disorder are leading to their binging, more binging to more exacerbates the cycle. And then all anyone can talk about is, you know, the O word and the, O. the O word is obesity, which I do not use in my vernacular, but just for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, you know, that's the epidemic in the country. That's the crisis. That's the health crisis that we're trying to address. And it's like, what? You know, so many of those health consequences that are associated with being higher weight are actually the result of yo-yo dieting, rapid weight fluctuations, you know, a shattered metabolism from a lifetime of trying to lose weight. Um, And it's like, if we could treat people like human beings and uh, normalize how many different types of bodies exist um, and stop pathologizing fatness. We would not tell people that they need to restrict. We would not shame them for not being able to control themselves with food, quote unquote. And we would stop discriminating against people of size. And guess what? Binge eating disorder would dramatically decrease, (laughs) uh, which would inadvertently actually probably get closer to solving what they think is the problem. Um, And it's just really frustrating to see how backwards the thinking about it is. I went to the White House conference on health, sorry, and hunger, nutrition and health. Um, When was that? End of September. I can't even, I don't know what day it is. Um, Yeah, just a little over a month ago. And, you know, they talked all about food accessibility and and the hunger crisis in America and how many people are going to bed hungry uh, in this country. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. I, you know, in this country, no one should go to bed hungry. Like, absolutely. And then the second set of issues that they all talked about were quote unquote diet related illnesses, which were all about. I mean, it was just like total wellness diet, like wild, wild, wild pizza is bad for you. Like, right ways of eating wrong ways of eating they all want to put labels on food like a stop sign you know red light yellow light green light and and categorize foods as like good neutral or bad and it's like what this is such a have you ever talked to an eating disorder provider in your life it's just not the way to do it
0: what i'm for listeners who are thinking because they've been conditioned that way. And that's what they've been exposed to. And so they're thinking, well, that that's what I was taught. That is how I should eat. Mm -hmm. So they may not even be able to understand like what an alternative, Mm -hmm. like truly healthy approach to eating might look like. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm
0: just curious if you have thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I love this question, because I really think that, you know, the way that people who have healed from their eating disorder eat and their relationship with food is like, to me, the ideal. And so it's like this person who has, you know, theoretically had the worst relationship with food ends up having, I think, a really beautiful relationship with food through all the things that eating disorder treatment can teach and provide, which is about flexibility. It's about adequacy. It's about frequency. It's about pleasure. It's about trusting that your body knows what to do with food. Uh, There's so many things that people gain over the long, hard path of eating disorder healing, that if only we could teach kids this from the beginning, right? That's how we could end this epidemic. Um, I don't think it would eradicate eating disorders because eating disorders are also brain illnesses. They're also genetic. They're also you know prevalent for lots of different kinds of reasons beyond the societal pressure to look a certain way. Um, but they are absolutely exacerbated by it. I mean, it's like this petri dish that is <laughs> growing all kinds of people who might have a predisposition to an eating disorder, but whose eating disorder would never onset in a different environment or if they were given different tools and a different way of thinking about eating from the beginning. And so, I just wish that um, people could learn these things earlier on and and learn how to eat much more often, much more deliciously, much more variety, much different, you know, differently, like all foods fit. Like if you are craving a Twinkie, who cares, you know, like great, uh, trusting that, you know, you're going to, people are very afraid that if they let themselves eat whatever they want, that they will, you know, absolutely control control and never stop. Exactly. And it's like, So not true. The fact is, is that if you truly eat according to your cravings and you're really checking in with like, what are you hungry for? You know, what, why are you hungry? When are you full? What is satiety experience like in your body? You know, all of these things that you can learn when you're really slow down and pay attention, you're going to crave Dessert, as much as you crave kale salad, as much as you crave a burger, as much as you crave, you know, hummus, hummus and carrots, or whatever you think the quote unquote good foods are. You know, it's like our bodies actually want that variety, um, and they have they have signals to, to tell you. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I I heard this once, and I'm going a little bit of a tangent here, but I heard this once where it's like, you know, a parent letting their kid overeat the halloween candy so that they could learn that it gives them a stomach ache for themselves rather than being told that they cannot eat all the candy right which only increases the desire for the candy right and it's like if they just learn oh gosh when i eat too much candy i get a stomach ache that's how you learn and you learn that your body will tell you and that's that's setting someone up to actually eat some candy and then stop eating the candy when before they feel sick about it. And so exactly. Um,
0: That's a lot like what I teach, which I call the empowered eating process, because mm-hmm. I realized in my own journey, like, wow, I had given nourishing myself and feeding myself. I had given my power away to all the diet books, and all the food rules and things I'd been told this mm-hmm. this is what clean and healthy eating mm-hmm. is like, and this is what how you should eat. And so I was trying so hard to eat according to their eating schedule intermittent fasting or cut out these foods Wild. right it's and I got so confused because all I wanted was to feel good and to be healthy and the more I tried to eat what I thought was healthy the more unhealthy and out of control I got
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it was this realization like up until me trying to eat that way I had never had an eating disorder I'd been I would eat what I felt like eating and sometimes it was candy and sometimes it was, you know, fruits and vegetables and I was fine. Mm -hmm. And so it was this realization of we intuitively and innately know how to feed ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then we override our innate knowing by starting to give our power away Mm -hmm. to the forces that be outside of us or the conditioning that we're receiving and the messages that we're hearing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the process is starting to take your power back. Mm -hmm. And that does require relearning hunger cues, because a lot of times we are disconnected from the body and we have stopped eating according to hunger cues. And we need to relearn how to trust our intuition again and honor, Mm -hmm. like when something feels like a yes or something feels like a no. But as you start to do that, you start to realize like, oh, I can trust my body. And it is telling me exactly what I need. Yep. And to your point with the candy, which is what I teach, if you have a craving and you eat it and you feel sick afterwards, mental note, I get to learn, oh yeah, this didn't actually make me feel good. I thought mm-hmm. it was going to taste good, but I actually felt sick or lethargic and tired after and so, based on the learning I'm getting from my unique body, according to how specific foods make me feel, you get to continue to refine and tweak how you choose to nourish yourself from a place of love and actually feeling good, not from a place of self hatred and having to force yourself to conform. Yep, exactly. To what we've been exactly.
1: Exactly. And all of this does get complicated when you add in other layers, right? Someone who's neurodivergent who has a sensory processing issue, they are not going to intuitively know how to feed themselves. Um, and, then, and then you get into, you know, food scarcity, poverty, um, food deserts, all of those things. And it's like the privilege of knowing what you want to eat and having access to that food and being able to feed yourself consistently. Those, those layers get really, really tricky when we talk about this kind of eating model um, where it's, it's just like sort of not that simple. Right. Um, and at the same time, there are a lot of people with eating disorders for whom it could be that simple, right. Who don't have those barriers, who, who aren't experiencing, um, sensory processing issues or food scarcity. And so I think that type of healing model makes a ton of sense for those of us or, you know, with, with people with eating disorders who, Whose disorder relationship with food is very strongly influenced by messages about food and messages about body and diet culture and um, fat phobia and all of those things um, and wellness culture. Uh, and then, you know, there's a whole other bucket of folks who have very different considerations that make it a lot harder to do what we're describing. Um, and so it's really, really important, I think, to include them in these conversations yes. because, um, yeah there's an assumption in a lot of this that the primary driver is body image or, um, health concerns. Right. And it's like, not the case for all people with eating disorders, eating disorders are so complicated. And I think that's so what I- complicated. <laughs> I, what I love about them though, is like, I find it really endlessly fascinating, but it's frustrating, right? Cause we put everything under this umbrella. It's like eating disorders. It's like, do you know the difference between you know a 14 year old boy with arfid and a 45 year old like unhoused black woman you know what i'm trying to say it's like these are how can you say this is what works <laughs> for eating disorder treatment they're so different and there's such different considerations and so you have to have all of these things like everything we just described about what a quote unquote i think healed relationship with food looks like you also need access. Yes. You also need support. You also need, uh, to understand your own mind and have somebody who understands your mind too, and can help you work around some of those cognitive, um, differences that fall outside of, yeah. you know, neurotypical experiences. And mm-hmm. so,
0: and even just resource, you know, if yeah. you're a low socioeconomic status and you can't afford the organic, produce and what is accessible is more fast food or processed foods that by nature have more of an addictive chemical quality, right? Like there's different factors and considerations that.
1: Yeah. And a lot of times the restriction that occurs all day in someone who is lower, um, lower income, it's like, they might be restricting all day because they feel like crap after their binge from the night before. They may be restricting all day because they're trying to quote unquote be good. They might be restricting all day because they haven't had time because they have three children and three jobs. Mm-hmm. They might have restricted all day because, you know, they know their doctor told them that they need to lose weight. You know, they may be restricting all day because they simply cannot afford more than one meal in a day. Right. right? And so it doesn't really matter what caused that restriction. I mean it it ultimately of course does because it is deeply individualized, but all we know is that of course, someone who hasn't eaten all day for whatever reason is going to be like, yes, I'm going to buy three meals from McDonald's right now, because number one, it only costs $15. And number two, I'm starving. Right. Uh, and I know when I, you know, have, you know, skip a meal because I'm stressed or busy or whatever else, like the the next thing I want is going to be really salty and really comforting and really delicious. And I'm like, I'm, I'm so hungry. I'm going to be in a really different place. Right. And so I just think we need to sort of normalize that. I, I don't think that a person who has adequate access to food wants to eat McDonald's every night and a person with all the access to food in the world. I hope they eat McDonald's from time to time because McDonald's is delicious and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, so it's like, and it's not just like, Oh, a cheat day or like every once in a while. It's like, yeah, when
0: I feel like you want
1: McDonald's, have McDonald's exactly. But you have to build a life within which you have adequacy, flexibility, you know, frequency that you're not hurting yourself when you choose McDonald's. Right. And I think that's the the difference. Um, yeah, I love that, that
0: recommendation of like checking in with, it's like, the what's the function of the behavior? Mm-hmm. Am I doing this because I, I need physical nourishment? Or yeah. is there harm that's coming yeah. from the choice I'm making? And if you can start to discern between what is driving the behavior. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work I do with binging is, am I feeding my feelings, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're eating to continue to suppress or numb from emotional pain, then well, that's not actually supporting you in, in experiencing well-being or yeah. feeling better. And so then we get to choose not to eat the McDonald's right now and just be with the hurt that's mm-hmm. arising or the yeah. frustration that's there and, and learn how to, you know, meet our true needs mm-hmm. or that whether that's an emotional need or a physical need. And for many of us, we, I can speak for me, right? We have the advantage and privilege of being able to do that, yeah. and not everybody does, mm-hmm. and so that's one reason I really love Project HEAL is your commitment to offering treatment access to all populations, mm-hmm. especially those that are underserved, yeah. like the LBGTQ plus population and the, the BIPOC, mm-hmm. you know, communities, and so I'm wondering if you can just speak a bit more about yeah. why those populations
1: really are needing mm-hmm. this sort of support. Well, here we are, two thin, presumably cis white ladies, right? So the eating disorder disorder field is just chock full of people like us. Exactly. Every time you walk into a treatment center or go to a networking conference or whatever, I mean, I say this all the time, but it feels like a sorority. Like I walk in and I'm Mm. like, every single person here could be related to me. I hate being a part of this club, you know? And when you understand the statistics of who has eating disorders, you start to realize how that's not just annoying, it's egregious, right? It is so problematic um, because the fact is that, you know, trans people are eight times more likely to have eating disorders. Um, Black and brown folks are more likely to struggle with binge eating disorder or bulimia than their white counterparts. Um, Why aren't they there? Where are they? Right. And it's because of the way our system is designed and the healthcare system is designed um, to be extremely discriminatory towards those populations in general. Right. They're also experiencing additional distress and through systemic oppression. Yes. And so um, and then they're the least likely to get diagnosed and the least likely to be safe in treatment settings because those treatment settings are designed for people who look like you and I, most of the eating disorder research that forms the foundation of what we call evidence-based care is research that was conducted on teenage white girls with anorexia and maybe bulimia if we're lucky. Right. So we don't even have evidence-based care for people who fall outside of that. And that's why it doesn't work for them. Right. And then they go into these spaces where they're othered, where the furniture doesn't fit their bodies, where there's nobody there that looks like them, where there's nobody there who speaks like them. They're forced to code switch. They're misgendered throughout. And it's like, those folks are then re-traumatized in what should be a healing environment as being other than, and feeling like, um, yeah, they just don't fit. And that is such a huge problem. Um, and so what we think about, and then, and then not only that, right. But like BIPOC folks, um, are more likely to be low income. There's huge wealth disparities racially in this country. There's, um, huge disparities in insurance status, um, because of the same thing, right. It affects employment. It affects housing. It affects, um, all of these things. And so when you, Add in all those layers uh of like, of course, if eating disorder treatment is expensive and really only provided in urban areas, and it's primarily covered by private insurance and especially very high quality private insurance through an employer who's providing high-quality healthcare insurance, that's why you start to see like, of course, it's only the most privileged people in this country who are accessing care. Um all, it all adds up. And so when we are thinking about, you know, breaking down barriers to eating disorder care, we're thinking about not only people who can't afford it and whose insurance won't cover it for a variety of reasons. um, We're also acknowledging the fact that if you fall outside of that eating disorder stereotype, if you're a man or a boy, if you're trans, if you're queer, if you're disabled, if you're over 24, if you're um, higher weight, like, you are less likely to get eating disorder treatment exponentially. And so those are the folks who we center in our messaging, because I think we really need to go out of our way to say, this space is for you too. And we're working really hard to make sure that this space is safe for you. Um, And, you know, your eating disorders matter to us. And to me, the definition of equity is really different than the definition of equality it's not about equal distribution of resources to everybody, regardless of identity. And it's not about, um, you know, all people with eating disorders getting access to care. Of course, we do serve all people with eating disorders. We serve white people. We serve cis people. We serve straight people. We serve underweight people under the age of 24. We serve able-bodied people. So it's not, it's not that we don't serve them. It's that we are going out of our way to disproportionately distribute resources to those who have Disproportionately less resources than other people. And that's the definition of equity. And that's the basis of what we're trying to do. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, we would have unlimited resources to help people get into eating disorder treatment. Since we don't have unlimited resources, we have to make decisions about who we provide support to. And so, if we try to say yes to every single person, regardless of any of these factors, um, but we do prioritize those who without our help, it would be impossible to get, right? And so that's, I think the most, the thing that I'm the most proud of. And it's something that frankly, we didn't do as well in the first, you know, years of our organization. I think we were a lot more mainstream and like, you know, apolitical and um, we acknowledged the stereotypes for sure, but we didn't do a good job of naming the ways that systemic oppression is showing up in the eating disorder space um, and how inequitable and homogenous the eating disorder space is and how inhospitable it is to people with marginalized identities. And so I think since we've pivoted to doing that um, two and a half years ago, when I took over as CEO, it's made pretty huge strides in helping people understand the, the injustices that are present, not only in our society, but specifically in the eating disorder space. And I think it's helping hopefully slowly but surely kind of try to right some of those wrongs and move the eating disorder field along. My dream is that eating disorder treatment centers, you walk in and it is representative of the actual statistics of the populations that have eating disorders in this country. Um, People of all ages, all sizes, all races, all sexualities, you know, and even maybe more of those people who have a higher incidence rate of certain eating disorders would be represented, right? Theoretically, if eating disorder treatment centers, if you walked in and the patient population actually reflected what we know about eating disorder incidents, the thin white cis teenage girl with anorexia would be the minority. They would be the exception. And instead, that's 95% of who's in treatment settings. Wow. That needs to be flipped entirely.
0: Yes. And I'm curious. I mean you guys are doing such tremendous work to start to like shift the trend and really make an impact in this huge like imbalance that you're Mm -hmm. highlighting. Is there outside of, you know, what Project Heal is doing, anything you feel like is going to be like essential to make that happen? Like for me as a practitioner and is this like, it stems, it boils down to an insurance problem and it's really up to the insurance companies to make some changes or i'm just like i'm like i see the vision how do we get there and how can i be a part of the solution is really what i'm wondering
1: yeah well i think first and foremost um providers who are in this space now need to do deep dives into their own implicit biases They need to really wrap their minds around their own fat phobia. They need to wrap their minds around their own racism, their own transphobia, their own homophobia, their own um, sort of default settings for neurotypical able-bodied people. So like all of these assumptions need to be challenged um, and we need to really reconfigure all of these spaces to take into account all of those other experiences Um, I also think that, I I think that's the first step. I think there's some pretty big systemic things that need to happen. One of them is that eating disorder training needs to be required for all master's level and doctoral level clinicians. Yes.
0: I think we spent 15 minutes in my grad school training, honestly, mm -hmm. on eating disorders. I got trained in my practicum, like in the clinic, but in terms of school
1: curriculum, it's over maybe one case study of anorexia, maybe bulimia, right? You, most doctors and most therapists and most dietitians, more dietitians get a little bit more, do not know a single thing about eating disorders. And they're just as ignorant about it as your, your uncle or, you know, Joey from second grade, like they do not understand it. And so that is perpetuating this problem significantly. Uh, and I think if we can do a better job of training providers simply to screen, to even be baseline eating disorder competent, you don't need to know how to be a specialist to treat the most high acuity, like severe and enduring anorexia nervosa, which is almost all the training is, is geared towards that. That's not what most eating disorders are. Most eating disorders are mild to moderate severity, really troubling and hurting people in their lives, but they don't necessarily require hospitalization. They don't necessarily require complex medical intervention. Or residential
0: treatment for
1: months. Most people need to relearn how to eat. Most people need to relearn how to feel, right? These are things that every mental health professional should know how to do. Um, And I think, I mean, that is something that Project Heal is going to be tackling next year. We're going to be establishing some eating disorder competency trainings, and we're going to be specifically piloting that. With black therapists who are already licensed and um, teaching them about eating disorders, and I think that's going to be pretty game changing. Not only to increase the volume of providers in the eating disorder field, but to diversify the number of pro- the, the kinds of providers that are in the eating disorder field, and then to bring some of this liberation from fatphobia and liberation from diet mentality um, to black communities who have been totally erased from the eating disorder conversation for so long, they get to then take it back into their own practices, into their own families, into their own communities. And that I think is going to be the tipping off point for a lot of really important change. I think that's one of the things that breaks my heart the most is when I meet a black person who is so fat phobic, um, that they don't even realize that that fat phobia is actually part of white supremacy culture that they have absorbed you know, the ideology of their oppressor, they, they are a lot better at, at, at teasing it out, right? Like they can, they can sense microaggressions. They I'm speaking so generally like they, I'm just saying like, you know what I'm saying? Like most of the black people I know are like, get out of here with your white supremacy bullshit about every other thing, but they don't realize that their fat phobia is part of it. And so they're perpetuating that phobia in their own communities and in, against themselves, worst of all. Um, and, Even some of the black therapists that I know who have no eating disorder training, they themselves have untreated eating disorders and they themselves as clinicians do not realize and didn't, didn't realize it until we talked about it. They're like, Whoa, I've had an eating disorder for three decades, right? This community needs healing. Um, and so I really, really think it's best if it comes from within the community, not by sending them into all these hyper white spaces that don't have the single, a single clue, <laughs> uh, right. Who are likely to harm them. Um, I'm excited for uh, like a future where there are like all black eating disorder treatment centers, right? Like all, <laughs> all trans eating disorder treatment centers, like population and identity specific treatment centers that allow people to just bypass all of the work that comes with having to like be, be in a space that's not designed for you. And to be in a space that's designed for you specifically, it's just like, it's beautiful. And it's, um, it's amazing. So the next thing I think that would need to happen is that um, obviously insurance reform needs to happen. The Mental Health Parity Act in 2008 has been largely unenforced. And so there's huge disparities between what private insurance will cover and what government insurance will cover. And so that's really, really important. Um, and then I think really working with those like major employers, because those major employers, there's there's a handful of companies that employ the vast majority of this country. And like the federal government is one of them, right? Walmart is another one of them, right? If we can get some of these major employers to understand eating disorders, they can actually, they're the ones that are picking their healthcare plan, right? Microsoft, Boeing whatever. Right. There's huge companies, AT&T. I don't know. Right. Like you have huge, huge companies. If those employers can select plans that have no exclusions for eating disorder care that have no authorization required based on health things, you know, um, or, or weight, at, for their insurance companies, like that's huge. Um, so those are really separate, like reforming private insurance Is really in the hands of the employer. And that's why I've been working with a handful of other folks with the Department of Labor, because that's actually under their purview. And then you've got the Department of Health that's overseeing Medicare and Medicaid and um, TRICARE. And so that's a whole separate issue, right? They have huge exclusions. They won't cover anything outside of outpatient and inpatient, with very few exceptions. And so there's a multi pronged approach at the state and the federal level that needs to happen for insurance coverage. But I think the last thing I will say is that one of the things that needs to change is we need to get the DSM six to remove the weight criteria from anorexia nervosa and to eliminate atypical anorexia as a diagnosis, right? There is no difference between them besides this weight criteria. And it's extremely dismissive to people with atypical anorexia because not only (laughs) it's anorexia, but it isn't, Even atypical. It's actually dramatically more typical. More typical. Yeah. Um, so if we can remove the fat phobia from the DSM, that will really help, right? So we it's it's the only mental health diagnosis in the DSM that has any kind of biometric. This is a mental health condition that is measured by thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, not by the number on the scale. And it's absolutely ridiculous that we have this as this like lingering criteria. Like, a criteria, it doesn't make any sense. Obviously it is a medical emergency. If someone is, has a BMI of 13, obviously, right? Like they could die any second. That's, that's clear. Guess what? People of all body sizes can die from an eating disorder at any given time, right? Like there's a real erasure that happens with that. So I think when we remove that from the DSM, it'll take probably another five years for insurance companies to catch up to not basing insurance authorization on that criteria it takes them forever. Um, these are like long, long, long-term solutions right. that this is like the to end happen. game. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to take some time to yeah. implement because there's a ton of implicit and pretty explicit phobia in insurance yeah. authorization. Um, yeah. And so that's part of why when you go into these treatment settings, it's so homogenous because nobody else can get their insurance to pay for it. Insurance isn't taking it seriously unless you're visibly underweight or unless you have, you know, abnormal labs demonstrating organ failure of some kind. So are we really waiting to treat a mental health condition seriously until someone's in organ failure? Why you wouldn't wait until someone was in liver failure to get them into alcohol treatment. Imagine if we were like, so sorry, your drinking problem isn't serious enough yet. Cause your liver, your liver, when you're near levels death, are come back and find us. In fact, at that point, that's when people don't get into alcohol treatment when they finally have that, because people are like, "There's we can do. It, yeah, exactly. So why is it backwards, um, with anorexia or even with any, with any eating disorder? It's, it's so bizarre to me, uh, to wait until people are having medical complications to treat a mental health condition. And this is where I think eating disorders have the eating disorder field has failed. And where, where our healthcare system has failed is that eating disorders are one of these really funky corners of the DSM that are medical and mental health. So mental health professionals are like, Oh no, eating disorders are too medically complicated for me. I can't handle that. I'm going to refer out. And then medical providers are like, Oh, I don't know how to handle an eating disorder. I wasn't going to therapist. Do that. go see a therapist. And so they're falling through the cracks. And the only time that they can get integrated holistic care from both mental health and medical providers at the same time is if they are quote unquote sick enough to have organ failure or to be physically underweight, you know, medically underweight. And then it's like, by that time, someone is there. The eating disorder is so entrenched and most people never get there. I mean, this is so backwards. So backwards. Any sense.
0: And we're talking about treatment of millions of people who have developed an eating disorder, not to mention what we should be doing to prevent it getting there
1: in the first place, right? Which is a whole other
0: side of the the discussion. And
1: there's a whole other host
0: of problems there.
1: We're so far from eating disorder prevention. I don't even know how to. (laughs) It's like, so social media has like free reign to, to basically deliver diet ads to people, um, and they know it and it's, they're not doing anything about it. Um, they're, they're doing, doing something, but they're still willing to do it right They're They're not, they, they really do believe that people, um, need and deserve diet ads because it's healthcare information. I'm just like, What? People can talk to their own medical providers about dieting if they want to. They can seek that information out on their own. Why are you delivering it to them? Do you know how many diet ads I get? I have never once dieted. I have never once searched for a diet. I get at least five diet ads a day, and I report every single one of them. I have unselected this as my ad interests. I've done every single thing. I still get five diet as it And I'm telling you, it's because I follow body positivity mm-hmm. accounts and eating disorder accounts. And it's like, they know. Yeah. The way that we're targeted is, and I follow a lot of like fat so creators sneaky. and like, you know, like, and, and, and I basically like, they're assuming that I'm fat because I'm deliberately cultivating a feed that has body diversity in it. And so then they assume that I might really want to lose weight. Like, this is so disgusting to me. So you've got the social media piece, which is where people are spending hours and hours and hours of their day. And then you have the federal government, even in 2022, saying we should put labels on food so that people know which foods are good and bad. And we need to make sure that this is in our schools. And it's like, okay, the eating disorder prevention conversation has not entered the chat. That is a surefire way to develop eating disorders in young people it guarantees the development of eating disorders in at least 50% of people of young children who are exposed to that are you serious right now i'm sorry i'm ranting
0: no this is I, i'm sitting here <laughs> like i don't want to say in shock but as you're sharing it's just it's hitting me like in my bones and like the depth of my soul because You know, when I've been working in this profession for so long and my passion is to support this community, it's like I almost forget how bad it really is. Mm -hmm. And then as we're talking, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's worse than I even remember. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to feel almost paralyzed with Mm -hmm. the terror of the whole system and setup and what we're trying to Work against to help mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. heal and end their suffering with food and eating and their bodies, and it's you know it feels like just chipping away at a really big big yeah. problem, and yet mm-hmm. I really feel like you guys are making like monumental strides towards changing the way we're that, it. that we're
1: trying. <laughs> it's, our it's society
0: a- is when it comes to both mm-hmm. eating disorder
1: treatment and prevention. It's a long game. You certainly cannot, um, you can't wave a magic wand and you can't burn the eating disorder treatment landscape as it exists down, right? Some folks are like, the whole thing is broken, you know, burn it to the ground. Unfortunately, it really does still save lives. And too many people need it based on the, you know, hundreds of applications that we get. People need it. So we need to be doing both at the same time. We need to be getting people in to save their lives now with a good enough slash harm reduction lens. And then we need to be overhauling our culture and reforming our healthcare system, right? Big picture, long-term stuff. And at the same time, figuring out, you know, what is the most helpful, least harmful way to get this person to a better place. It might not be full healing, given the full context of their reality, but it can be a stabilization. It can be better, um, even a reduction in severity.
0: Exactly. Because uh, when I had really severe bulimia and I was bingeing and purging multiple times a day, and my doctor is telling me that my potassium levels are at the rate of someone who would go into cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm that's Mm life-threatening and that is not Mm well-being and when my episodes shifted down to like once a month it was like whoa quality of life night and day difference absolutely right and so just being able to have that harm reduction and a, a shift in the intensity and frequency of symptoms and have more mental peace it's it's so invaluable and necessary that yeah. people can start to experience that for themselves.
1: Exactly. And the fact is, is like, even if someone does go to residential and, you know, they're there maybe even for longer than four weeks, which is the typical length of stay, maybe they're even there for a few months and it's sufficient. And maybe they step down to a partial hospitalization and then they set down to IOP and they have more than enough time and they have good insurance. Eating disorder healing takes years. Like, so we, we aren't, like treatment is not this magic wand of like and then when you're done you're done and it's easy and it's over right treatment is usually the getting started <laughs> point it's just getting started it's a literal reset um and you're totally rewiring your brain and i think it's really important to say that like this harm reduction model is important because it's not saying that it's okay to have an eating disorder and like, you know, we don't think it's that serious. It's about the reality of the fact that this is going to take time and it's okay that it is going to take time. You know, I think some of the people who end up relapsing the most are those who go into this, what we call, you know, flight to health, right? This like, okay, and I'm never going to do that again. I'm totally done. I'm all better. (laughs) And you're oh just yeah, like, I know oh, that mate. pattern. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's actually a much more, I think, dangerous um, path to take. It's a lot better if you can take your time, really understand it, notice what your triggers are, learn how to not shame yourself for you know using an old behavior and an old pattern and like the self-forgiveness that comes from that, like that is inherently part of the healing and if someone never gives themselves the opportunity to forgive themselves for that then they might be that much more vulnerable to a lapse or a relapse later and and have no skills to handle it at the time and then all of a sudden it's like well it's that perfectionism it's still a perfectionistic mindset you're still like it's either all or nothing so it was all before and now it has to be nothing and as soon as it's not nothing I might as well be all and it's like no 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 We've got to teach us – we have to learn how to live in some gray areas. Yeah, I always have compassion for oneself in the process. Yeah.
0: Because I know the self-loathing can be so prevalent Mm -hmm. and people hate themselves that they can't seem to Mm -hmm. control themselves or that they Mm -hmm. can't just be normal. And it's like – no, hating yourself is part of the the problem, Mm -hmm. right? It's like through a loving, compassionate – space and within yourself and from others, whether it's your providers or your family, like like that creates the environment for true healing to take place Mm -hmm. and for forgiveness to take place and for you to actually be able to like support yourself (laughs) towards the recovery journey versus continuing to like beat yourself up and put yourself down. Cause then you're just going to stay stuck looping.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you basically by, by maintaining self, you know, contempt um, you are set, you're setting yourself up to be very vulnerable to every lapse, right? <laughs> it's like, it's the, it is the fertilized soil within which eating disorder behaviors occur. So you actually have to create a self, a relationship with yourself within which that it wouldn't even occur to you, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that that happens immediately, but I think that's what those who I know who have really fully, deeply recovered from eating disorders is like. I have learned to like love myself enough, and not even in the feelings type of way, in the action type of way, uh, in the verb sense of the word, right? I have decided that I deserve care and respect. Um, and that my needs are not too much and that, um, I deserve pleasure and I deserve connection and I have a life that's oriented around those things. That's the kind of life within which it simply doesn't occur to you to throw up after a meal.
0: No, it starts to fade away Mm -hmm. those sorts
1: of compulsions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But to your point, it's not, that's not an overnight process. Oh my God. That fading away took years for me to get to that point where like, oh, it doesn't even occur to me anymore. Yeah.
1: Right. I have, I have seen in the folks who do get to that place that not only have they had adequate support and resources, um, but they, it takes like seven years, even when you're really doing it. So I'm, that's just a random number that is mostly anecdotal, but I think that's kind of around the amount of time, like, and that, and that's with resources and support and a real kind of commitment. It doesn't have to mean you're motivated every second of every day of those seven years. Let me tell you what, that motivation comes and goes for sure. But the overall commitment, Mm -hmm. it's the commitment. Yeah.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. So for people who are feeling called to seek treatment or help, you know, people who maybe never have before, Mm -hmm. what are ways that people can receive support from project Teal? Because my understanding is you, have an application process that would pair people to treatment options if they have barriers to accessing treatment on
1: their own. Yeah. Yeah. So we have four key programs. We have a clinical assessment program that provides free one hour clinical consult um, where we can provide a diagnosis and some treatment recommendations through an anti-oppressive and harm reduction lens, which I think is really important. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a it's less pressure than going to a treatment center. It's less, it's free. So you don't have to pay a provider. So there's a real spaciousness and, and we aren't badgering you then to, to follow through on our commitments, right? You just take it. It's about getting yourself equipped with the knowledge that you need in order to know what to do next um, or what you could do next, if you so chose. Um, so that in program is really important to me because it breaks down those barriers to diagnosis that we were talking about at the beginning. And then right, we you're have, not going to ping pong between doctors and medical professionals who, who are dismissive and don't understand right. the answers. Yeah. And then we have a cash assistance program. So we help people pay for the tertiary costs related to treatment, you know, flights, lodging, prescriptions, um, co-pays, deductibles, all of those things. Um, we also have a free treatment placement program. So we do get people into totally free treatment at every level of care in the country. Um, and so, the those free treatment spots go to folks whose insurance will not cover the level of care that they need um and who cannot financially afford to access it otherwise. Um, and then we have, and that's you know, residential all the way down to outpatient and eating disorder coaches. And um that's really I think the thing that people most associate us with. And then last but not least, we have an insurance navigation program. So A lot of people think that they need free treatment because they can't figure out their insurance, but we actually help people figure out their insurance and help them get insurance that will cover their care, help them advocate for their insurance to cover their care, help them get single case agreements, which basically happens when an insurance company pays for treatment that they say is out of network or not authorized, right? Um, We help people file appeals. So there's you and I probably, you know, we're well-educated, we're fairly intelligent, et cetera. I could not figure out my own insurance if my life depended on it. So like, if you're also in the throes of your own illness and you have no support and no information, like you're going to go, I guess I can't go to treatment because I can't figure my insurance out. Right. Um, or yeah, the first... you're not even going to try. It's like, yeah. it's like, Oh, is... I don't, I don't see it on my explanation of benefits. So I guess it's not covered. Right. It's a very weird subsection of the, of the insurance world. And so we help people figure that piece out too. So we try to give as much, um, different kinds of support, like figuring out what's going on and what you should do about it, making sure you can access it, giving referrals, getting you into that treatment for free, paying for the costs that you can't afford that are accompanied by going to treatment, um, and figuring out how to maximize your insurance benefits. And so those, those programs are all, available through the same application on our website. Um, Some of them don't require the full application. So, but you'll see that when you go to our websites, which is um, Um, www.theprojectheal.org. Anyone who's listening to this and who's like, well, I don't need access to treatment, but this really matters to me you want to support I would love uh, if you went to our our website and made a donation even five dollars makes a huge difference, um but we're entirely donation based and um, you know, for anyone who knows, like eating disorder treatment is expensive as we've mentioned. and so this year, we have helped gosh, what is the number? We have helped over seven hundred people uh, get into wow. eating disorder treatment this year alone. and so um we can't do it without your help. Um, you know, and if we were to just pay out of pocket for every single one of those people, it would cost about $739 million. (laughs) So my gosh, uh, and our Ah. budget and our budget is 1 million. And so we have all of these programs to try to, um, circumvent that very complicated, very expensive system. And, um, you know, we need, we need as much support as we can get to do that. And it's really means the world to me. um, when people who understand eating disorders support organizations like project heal, because as you understand from this conversation, like a lot of people with the financial resources to help nonprofits like this, don't know anything about eating disorders and wouldn't think to support an organization like this. So we really need the people who do understand it to show up um, and to talk to the people in their life who maybe do have the means and, you know, philanthropic tendencies to understand that this is a huge area of need. That's not just affecting, you know, people with privilege as they might assume it's actually disproportionately affecting communities that they might care about through other, you know, I find a lot of people are like donating to, you know, population specific nonprofits that are providing community resources. And I'm like, those populations also have untreated eating disorders and we're the only folks helping them get into that treatment. So I think it's like, if you care about people of color, if you care about uh, people with disabilities, if you care about, um, the LGBTQ plus community, like this is a very meaningful way to help them. Um, and you don't have to, there's, you know, the eating disorder. It can be both. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really, I think, way to, I think, be intersectional around commitment to healthcare, equity, mental health, and um, communities that are really under supported in both of those areas.
0: Which is why I love Project Heal and I'm such a supporter. And I know when I talked to last, I said, well, I want to do more events that are going to be you know, raising money for your organization you. so everyone can stay tuned for for something. After this, I'm, I'm so lit up and inspired to, <laughs> I mean, my brain is like, oh my gosh, there's so many things that need to be done and so many ways I want to be able to help. And I know um, one way is through your healer circle. And so mm-hmm. just for anyone listening who's you know, struggling and maybe wanted to work with me, but thought, "Oh, I can't afford it." I mm-hmm. am going to be um, available through your program to receive, um, I guess, patients or clients mm-hmm. who go through your screening process and would be able to receive support from me as well without having to worry about the finances.
1: So amazing! Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that means so much. Yeah, any providers who are listening to this join our healer circle and you can donate, um, you know, one free treatment spot a year. Um, yeah. and most people do charitable care. They have a sliding scale. They're, they're trying to figure out how to make eating disorder healing possible. And so all we really ask is if they can contribute those spots or dedicate those spots to project heal beneficiaries. We end up reaching people who might not find you in a Google search, who might have way bigger barriers to accessing care than some of the folks that Ask for it when they call right Um, it's I think a commitment to equity to join project heal um, as a as a treatment provider. Um, And it's time limited right it's not like in perpetuity, we have a certain number of sessions that are donated so you're not in that awkward place at the end where you're like, okay, I can't treat you for free for the next seven years, right? We have to make sure that as many people have access to this very, very limited and scarce resource as possible. So anyway, you can also find information about that on our website.
0: Yeah. So, so much that people can follow up on at your (laughs) website and I'll include that information in our show notes as well. Um, And how, if they have any questions, you know, how they can follow up with Project Heal to be directed to where they can either make an impact and contribute or receive support and help on their journey. Absolutely. Thank you, Rebecca, for, first of all, this highly informative and revealing conversation. I appreciate how hard you are fighting for the equity in treatment and the populations that you're really supporting. It's It's huge. And I know for me as a thin white woman, you know, that I fall into the advantaged population and I recognize that, which is Mm -hmm. why having these conversations and continuing to do what we can to support all beings is really important. And so Mm -hmm. thank you for inviting me and others to really step up into that, that space and not just stay in the white girl sorority club, (laughs) because I don't want to be a part of that either, but it's so easy so just you're just naturally in that space until you realize the space you're in, right?
1: Yeah, look around at your What's next missing. at your next eating disorder gathering, whether you're a patient or a provider, and just ask yourself if this if you think that that makes any sense, given the true variety of people uh, that have eating disorders, and I guarantee you you'll find it quite troubling. yeah. Speaking to the, speaking to the listeners, not to you.
0: Totally. (laughs) But also to me, this Mm -hmm. is, you know, true for me as well to really become way more aware of it's important that we all, Mm -hmm. and to your point, do that work. It's like within ourselves, I've been committed to a racial equity program and -hmm. it's looking at like white bodies. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people listening might think, Oh no, I don't have any bias towards no fat phobia or no, I'm mm-hmm. like inclusive and I don't judge people based on the color of their skin or their sexual preference. And it's like it's it's not a mind thing. There's like inherent energy stored in our bodies as a result of the system and the cultures mm-hmm. and our ancestors that impacts us mm-hmm. that many of us don't even realize are at mm-hmm. play and affecting um how we create safety in a space. Mm-hmm. For others to feel included and safe. And so it's it's actually very nuanced and really complex. And there's a lot that we all need to be doing Mm -hmm. to take responsibility for our whiteness and our privilege and Mm -hmm. support this sort of revolution in healthcare for Mm -hmm. human disorders.
1: Yeah, agreed. And for those who maybe are in that camp and, and aren't sure where some of their implicit bias lies, I think Harvard has some really fantastic implicit bias tests. So maybe you can include a link to that in your show notes as well. Um, But you can also just Google Harvard implicit bias tests and there's tests about race, gender, and there's a a body size one. That's (laughs) I took actually last year or the year before. And I mean, I have been radically body neutral body, except, you know, I'm like, so my life is oriented around not being anti-fat, right? Like, and, right. And, and radically, like genuinely, deliberately positive, fat positive, right? That is my personal commitment. I've been swimming in it, chewing on it, you know, living it for over a decade, right? And I took this implicit bias test about, about body size. And I'm, I think it said moderately fat phobic <laughs> I was like cool 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 cool, cool. it's wild right? right it's like right do not it doesn't matter how long you've been working on this how woke you think you are how accepting you think you are um I guarantee you you have those biases and you it's impossible need- for us not to be
0: impacted by our culture and have these biases in place it's well, it's absolutely like, impossible. It's not so, about blame or right. It whatever. doesn't make you bad. This isn't saying you're a mean person.
1: It's just, y- you are being irresponsible if you don't know that you have them right. because you need to be working with them, right? Which is why we need to really take responsibility yeah. for yeah. this, exactly.
0: Yeah, well, thank you exactly. so much for really showing us what it is to take responsibility for that. And I know over the past two years, you guys have really made that a mission and focus for you and it's, it's felt and I'm really grateful for that.
1: Thank you. We've got a long way to go, but I'm very grateful to have people like you jumping in. So thank you. Yeah, and thanks for pleasure. having me today.
0: Ah, it was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I can't wait for people to, to learn about everything you guys are doing. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to the Empowered Eating and Living podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to follow the show so you don't miss future ones. And if you loved it, then please leave a five-star review so that we can share the love with others who may benefit from listening too.